everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Good morning, guys. My name is Amos. I'm the teaching pastor here. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know we've been reading this book, Daring Greatly, by Brené Brown, alongside this book, the Bible. And uh, one of the things that came up in the very first week was this idea of being unworthy. And in particular, like, we can all fill in this blank, right? I am never blank enough. And interestingly enough, um, this became very personal for me this past week. I, uh, you know... It's been a busy summer, and I know you guys all know what it's like to be busy, but we've gone from, you know, ordination to serve projects to conferences, and, and uh, this week in particular, I did a very bad job of setting boundaries. So by Wednesday, I had gotten, like, cranky and irritable and not at all fun to be around. Um, Allison was the one who took the brunt of that, my wife, who was on stage a second ago, and I regretted some of the things I said, and I regretted the volume in which I said those things. But I was sitting with my spiritual director. It was actually a video uh, call. Uh, So he was a thousand miles away in Ohio and I was sitting there and I was explaining to him that I didn't like the trajectory that I was on. Like, what is happening to me? I don't like this person. And is this the kind of pastor I'm going to be? And, uh, you know, he kind of listened to me and and he gently said, you know, what what would you want or what would you want to say to someone who is saying all this to you? And I said, you know, I think I'd want them to simply say, like, I love you, and I'm with you. And he said, do you think that Jesus would express that to you, like, if we just sat quietly for a minute? And I said, I bet he probably would. Let's just sit quietly. And so I, I like, dialed in, and, and he began to pray, like, Jesus, speak to Amos right now. And as soon as he started to pray, I just, this like, this phrase shot through my head. Like, I believe it was Jesus' voice. And he said, you're going to be fine. He said, you're going to be a good pastor. You're going to be a good husband. You're going to be a good person. And that was, that was totally uh, filling to me, right? Like the, I'm not good enough. That's the tape that's running in my head. And then I realized, hang on a second, Jesus. You say, I'm going to be a good pastor. You're going to be a good husband. What about right now? He said, well, you're kind of sucking it up right now. <laughs> but, but anyway, like, I, I, I had this incredible release. The irritability was gone. Uh, the yelling stopped. Like, and and I, was not, I was not in a good place. That's not who I am typically. Like, I love people. And my, uh, my wife and I went to Olive Garden, and I was, just, I was having a hard time being nice to the waitress. And that's not normal. So anyway, it was a big deal that in that moment, Jesus spoke words of, uh, should we say, worthiness into uh, my spirit or into my soul. And that's really, uh, in part, what this book, Daring Greatly, is about. Uh, Last week we talked about how uh, vulnerability is actually strength. But it's not the kind of strength that that is external, right? It's not about being muscular or powerful or wearing armor. Uh, To dare greatly, to be vulnerable, actually requires that we have this strength on the inside. 
But if there's one thing that, that opposes this idea of worthiness or inner strength, and I think it's something we can all relate to, it's this idea of shame. And so when we dare greatly, we put ourselves out there. But if we're not uh, wanting to or feeling strong enough to put ourselves out there, it's usually because we're experiencing this, uh, this inner shame that blocks the courage, that blocks uh, who we are. So we put on these masks and we, we try to hide in the background. Now, shame is, is a powerful, powerful, I don't know if you would call it an emotion, and I think uh, there are lots of directions to go with this topic. Of course, if you, if you grab this book, uh, this chapter on shame, I think, is one of the best ones. But we could talk about, you know, shame that we feel about uh, our physical bodies or, or shame, uh, you know, that we experienced from our parents growing up. But today I'm actually going to talk about, I think, uh, a particular kind of shame that does cover uh, each one of our experiences. I'm going to talk about uh, addiction and related to addiction, pornography. And... Uh, I'm going to keep this PG-13, so don't worry about that. And I, I do think it's appropriate to talk about pornography every couple of years. I think it's been two years since I talked about pornography here, or close to two years. And uh, I just, I think especially for men, it's one of those things you have struggled with, are struggling with, or will struggle with. And I don't mean that you're being constantly defeated by pornography and by pornography, you know, throw lust in there, throw uh, objectification of women in there. But, but there's a constant struggle that I think most men, if not all men, have. I assume that if you're a man, it's a struggle uh, for you. And so if you are uh, a woman, I'm not saying that this can't be a struggle for you, but more than likely you have a relationship with men, so it's helpful to know. But even if, uh, even if you're not into the kind of the spiritual dimension of this or, or particularly uh, interested in learning about pornography, like the idea of being addicted to not just substances, but to behaviors is, is going to be applicable, okay? Because I think we all have behaviors that we wish we didn't have. We all act in ways sometimes, whether it's acting out of anger uh, and yelling or, or you know, a bad habit that, that's not just a bad habit like I like to eat ice cream before I go to bed, but a bad habit that does like relational damage, uh, that does damage to your inside, that does damage to who you are. Like, we all have these things that we wish we didn't do. Um, and, and moreover, then we feel shame about that. So let me just read a little bit on shame from Brene Brown here a second. She says, sometimes when we dare to walk into the arena, the greatest critic we face is ourselves. Shame is universal and one of the most primitive human emotions that we experience. The only people who don't experience shame lack the capacity for empathy and human connection. In other words, here's your choice. Fess up to experiencing shame or admit that you're a sociopath. We're all afraid to talk about shame, but the less we talk about shame, the more control it has over our lives. Right? That's why we're talking about it today. Shame derives its power from being unspeakable. That's why it loves perfectionists. It's so easy to keep us quiet. If we cultivate enough awareness about shame to name it and to speak to it, we've basically cut it off at the knees. Shame hates having words wrapped around it. If we speak shame, it begins to wither, just the way exposure to light was deadly for the gremlins. Language and story bring light to shame and destroy it. Now, some of you might not know what gremlins are, but in 1984, 
there was an invasion of gremlins in this little town called Kingston or Kingstown or King something. And uh, they, they wrecked all sorts of havoc, right? Just as like shame can wreck all sorts of havoc in our life. But ultimately, these gremlins were defeated by, do you remember? Light. There was, uh, I can't remember the, the guy's name, Gizmo or something. Uh, well, never mind. That's, that's not important. The bad one, the gremlin, uh, was, was ready to respawn. And what happened is that someone opened up the, the ceiling so that light came on. And what happened to the gremlin is that he, he melted into this green ooze. Do you remember that? So too, shame that is brought into the light melts away, loses its power, loses its potency. Okay? So, um, I want to talk again... Uh, to start maybe specifically about pornography and lust. And this is a, a collection of four points that someone actually passed on to me, a guy named Ted Kim, who's the worship pastor at the Syracuse Vineyard. But I found this to be super true to my experience and the things that actually worked in my life to combat lust. Uh, I, I had read all the books. I had tried the self-help. You know, I had tried trying harder to just like not look at women in an objective way, to not look at images in an objective way. And none of this worked, none of that worked, but then this worked, and so these points uh, gave language to that. My first couple I won't spend a lot of time on. But number one, uh, stop adding to the image bank. You guys, you guys know how the human brain works. And if you, say, for instance, had looked at an image on the internet 15 years ago, it is still in there. You could probably recall it right now. So every time you look at an image, you're reinforcing that, uh, that behavior and you're adding to the album of images in your head, right? So just like in Alcoholics Anonymous, like the first thing you have to do to stop drinking is stop drinking, right? Uh, it's like it's, you got to go cold turkey. You just have to realize that the, the continued behavior only makes it harder to quit, right? So, so stop adding to the image bank. I'm not saying like the key is to try harder and I'm not saying like if you screw up then you need to, then it's a lost cause. I'm not saying at all. But just know that that's how the human brain works. The thing to do is to delete that image bank. Now, that sounds easy or naive <laughs> depending on your perspective. But one thing that I have found helpful is that when an image comes to my head, even if it's like I'm driving down the freeway and there's an image broadcast at me, I take that image and sometimes I like physically, like from my head, like imagine that I'm pulling it out and I give it to Jesus. If the image comes back, like pull it out and give it to Jesus. You, you know, if you can do this while you're driving. People might think you're weird, but they'll just assume you had this like, great idea or something. You don't have to explain it. Or if you're sitting quietly and you want to just like take care of a bunch of that nonsense, like ask Jesus to bring the images to your mind and one by one, give them to him. You have to delete the image bank to have any hope. Okay, point three. Point three has been edited due to the PG-13 nature of this talk. Uh, but if you want to know what point three is, you can email me at amos at csvineyard.org. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, a point that is only applicable to men, I'm afraid. Okay, so let's, let's now, uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. And uh, 
it would be probably helpful if you had a Bible to just keep your Bible open to this passage. Uh, we're going to do a little bit more Bible reading today than normal or a little bit more of a, like a Bible study than maybe I normally would. But I, I also think that this, this freedom that we're all desiring and ha- for the most part, am I right, have failed to overcome can be defeated and overcome uh, if, we, if we follow the advice of Paul who wrote this letter to the Colossian church. Um, so, three, 2 verse 20, and we'll just read through 23 here a second. Uh, Paul says, You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. And if you look at the, the original language that this was written in, in the Greek, that evil desires is actually uh, the, the expression like the indulgence of the flesh. And that's important to bring up uh, only because the, the idea of flesh or the Greek word sarks I'm a, I'm a Bible nerd, and I'm not going to make any of you learn much more Greek today, at least. Uh, but there's a couple of words that are always helpful to know. When Paul uses this, flesh, this word flesh or sarks, he's bringing up a metaphor that he, that he talks about over and over again. And he's always putting sarks, flesh, against spirit, pneuma, or more literally, breath. He's typically talking about God's breath inside of us. And when he says uh, that the flesh is bad, uh, he's not saying that like your physical bodies are bad. He says uh, all over the place, like your physical bodies are good, they're created by God, they should be celebrated and enjoyed. But uh, in this metaphor, when he talks about flesh, he's actually talking about that which decays, that which uh, is not significant eternally. So when we're acting out of the flesh, we are often uh, looking for ultimate purpose or meaning in things that are not eternal or that shouldn't or really can't carry uh, the weight of being our first priority or ultimate purpose. To, to fill this in, just jump ahead, if you would, for a second to Colossians 3, verse 5, and then we'll read verse 8 as well. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, uh, for a greedy person is an idolater. Uh, we'll jump to verse 8. Uh, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Paul's saying this is that stuff inside of us, the old nature, the flesh that still lurks in us. And if you notice, as I read that list, most of that stuff, anger, the stuff you're getting angry at is like not going to matter in 10 years, right? The, the sexual kind of immorality, like you're looking for a quick fix, right? Today, now. But, you know, in 10 minutes, it's not going to matter anymore. And certainly in 10 years, it's not going to matter. And in 100 years, and in 1,000 years, and in a million years, right? Like the things that drive us to these uh, behaviors that Paul defines as the flesh are those things that decay, that are, can I put it this strongly, like the things that are a cancer to our soul and to our community. The flesh is corruptible, and that's that's. The, the thrust of the metaphor here. But he goes on, if we jump back to verse, uh, sorry now, chapter three, 
Uh, He says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Jesus sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Jesus in God. I think we'll stop there. Oh, actually, I'll keep going. And when Jesus, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. The last part was a little more uplifting, wasn't it? Uh, I think still pretty difficult to understand, or at least difficult for me to understand. But uh, I want to key in on a few ideas or a few phrases. And one of the things that Paul said earlier was, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. And he goes on to say, they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires or right indulgence of the flesh. So, first thing Paul is saying here is that willpower is not enough. So, uh, this happened just a few weeks ago. Do you guys know what this is? Anybody? This is an immersion blender. I didn't know such things existed, but one day when I was uh, making a what do you call the soup that you kind of blend up? Bisque. One day I was making a bisque and I found it really annoying to take the soup and put it in a blender and put it back in the pot, but then you couldn't get all the soup in the blender. Anyway, so I went on Amazon and discovered immersion blenders. And what you can do is you can put the immersion blender right in the pot and it'll puree it up. So our immersion blender, uh, unfortunately, uh, wore out. So there's like a gear inside that... uh, that makes this little blade spin. This blade is what purees your soup. And so when you push the power button, it would go, it would come on, but the blade would only sort of kind of spin. And I can't fully explain why, but as I'm pushing the button, I think, I wonder if I put my finger right there, (laughs) if uh, if it'll like not spin at all. And it, and as a matter of fact, it did. And I, ow, you know, like, I cut my finger and I, and I was like, what? I said, these were my words. I was like, that was the stupidest thing I've done in a long time. <laughs> and I, I was laughing about it again this week and I'm laughing about it now. But uh, I, I don't know what happened. My brain shut off. <laughs> Does that happen to anybody else? Is it just men? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't. I could not tell you why I did that, but I was mesmerized, and I just, I, I, it's like my willpower wasn't even in f- functioning, and even if it was, I, I couldn't look away. It's like, you know how bugs, like, see that UV light, and they're like, oh, I can't help it. <laughs> right? That's how addiction works, though. And willpower is not going to be enough, because half the time your brain shuts off, and the other half the time you're like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I can't help it. Ow! And then usually, I mean, I didn't actually feel shame about that. I laughed about it. But usually what happens when we get zapped, when we cut our fingers uh, through addiction or through like an outburst of anger, right? We, we feel this overcoming, overwhelming shame. And so what I'm saying here today is that like all the self-help help books on the shelf is not going to help you become the person that you want to be. Your willpower is not as strong as you think it is. Your, your desires, your, your addictions, your, your lusts, so to speak, will overpower your willpower. 
you, you're not going to win that fight. Maybe, maybe for a minute, but not for an hour, right? Because we're like, I don't know, I, we're weak, we're something. Or anyway, let's just, let's keep going here. Another point. It, it, the, it actually, the news gets worse before it gets better, okay? So Paul says, uh, not only will willpower don't work, not work, but we're actually drawn to believing that willpower will work. And so it's very hard to unravel from that. Paul says, right, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. Do you know what Paul is talking about there? He is talking about that thing that most of us in this room, uh, but also most people in the entire country, planet, have tried to use to fix their problems. He is describing religion. Do you know what religion is? Religion is when we try to improve ourselves through our behavior, through our willpower, sometimes because we think being good people will earn God's favor. Like sometimes it gets that twisted. What Paul is saying here is not only does willpower not work, religion is tempting, and it doesn't work either. Willpower is not enough. Religion will not take you. Your efforts to be the kind of person you want to be will ultimately fail. I mean, I can't even, some of you are much more disciplined than me. I can't even, like, wake up and go to the gym more than once a month. You know, like, if I do it later in the day, there's a much better chance that I end up going to the gym because, I, like, I will not wake up that two hours early to go to the gym, like, Willpower is not enough, and, and religion, like going to church, is ultimately going to do something maybe to form your spirit, but going to church, trying to follow the rules, right? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's useless. And so just to like drive this down into uh, the pornography issue again, like how many of you, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have attempted to use religion to fix your pornography problem? I bet you it didn't work. How many of you tried to use willpower to fix the lust for, for, for sex, the lust for money, the lust for whatever it is, for power, for, for career? Like, religion didn't work, and willpower wasn't enough. Am I right about that? Can I get a, like, yeah, that's true? I think that's really true. And again, I'm not just talking about addiction. I'm talking about shame. Like, is over, can you overcome shame by trying harder? Can you overcome shame by coming to church every week? Like, you're trying to, you know, tip the scales in your favor, but it's like you're, you're always falling behind. Am I right? That's just what Jesus wants to do is take that system and flush it because it's not effective and it doesn't work. Let's, uh, let's actually look here again at Brene Brown. She says not only doesn't, doesn't it work, but it will cause religion and just fully depending on willpower, which will ultimately lead to shame. Either we're shaming ourselves or we'll feel shame from other people. We'll make it worse. So Brene Brown says this, we live in a world where most people still subscribe to the belief that shame is a good tool for keeping people in line, right? Or for keeping ourselves in line, whatever that line happens to be. Not only is this wrong, but it's dangerous. Shame is highly correlated with addiction, violence, aggression, depression, eating disorders, and bullying. You hear what she's saying? You think 
shaming other people or shaming yourself will help you overcome your addictions. She's saying that correlation actually gets stronger. The more you use shame, the worse it seems the violence, aggression, depression, addiction, all that bad stuff, the flesh, the stronger the flesh becomes. It's like, you know how gremlins feed on water? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But like, this is, this is a decent metaphor. I'm coming up with this on the spot. <laughs> you know how gremlins feed on water? When a gremlin touches water, they multiply, they spawn. Uh, when addiction touches shame, it multiplies, it spawns. It actually draws power from the shame. Uh, she goes on to say this, researchers don't find shame correlated with positive outcomes at all. There are, there are no data to support that shame is hel a helpful compass for good behavior. In fact, shame is much more likely to be the cause of destructive and hurtful behaviors than it is to be the solution. So if you're putting your trust in willpower or if you're putting your trust in religion, like trying harder to be a good person, to stop doing the bad things, forget it. It's a dead end. But Paul says in Colossians 3, since you have been raised to new life with Jesus, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Jesus sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Jesus in God. And when Jesus, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Willpower is not enough. Religion doesn't work. Instead, what Paul is saying here, set your sights on the real you. And that sounds like self-help, but it's actually the Bible here. When he's saying, set your sights on your real life, like there is this war going on, right? There is this tension. There's this weird monster that came out of me on Wednesday. And I, I was sharing with my spiritual director, like, I don't know what's happening to me. This isn't me. This isn't who I am. But it was at war with the new me, the real me. And I tried, gosh, I tried my hardest to like, tough it out, and I mustered up all the strength I had to be nice, and I couldn't be. And then I, what, I, what did I do? I did, I, not, I hadn't prepped this yet, okay? Like, I hadn't read this yet. I turned my heart to Jesus so that Jesus could speak to me, so that I could be in his presence, and that's what got me out of my, like, funk. Set your sights on the real you. So instead of trying to stop doing the things you don't want to do, focus that energy somewhere else. Focus that energy onto Jesus, who is actually, right, not just containing your life, right? When we say that the spirit of God lives in us, we're talking about like the breath, the life-giving spark. Jesus' life-giving spark, he has put into us. Set your sights on Jesus Focus that energy on Jesus. It's not going to be productive to focus your energy on, you know, your behavior and stop doing those things. Focus your energy on the person you want to become. Uh, that's, that's your only hope. Make yourself into that or, or remind yourself that you are the person who doesn't do all those bad things. You want to stop looking at porn? 
Focus on becoming like Jesus. And if you're like Jesus, you are the kind of person who doesn't look at porn. Focus on becoming the kind of person who doesn't look at porn. Stop trying to stop looking at porn. <laughs> it will not work. You will, you will fail, and then you'll feel shame about it, okay? We're trying to, like, lift you out of that shame and focus that attention and energy on Jesus who looks at you and says, you are good, and I love you, and I'm with you. And I, and I, don't, I don't mean, like, going to the spiritual gym, right? Like, I already said, that's not super, I'm not, I don't have enough willpower to go to the real gym, let alone the spiritual gym. But, like, there are certain things that we do to develop that relationship with Jesus. And if you have a relationship with somebody, if you love somebody, there's this weird kind of intermingling that happens. Like even if, you know, how people start to look like their spouse, but also act like their spouse if you're married for a long time, right? Um, I think that's a thing. <laughs> but to, to, to set your affection, to set your love on Jesus, you will uh, naturally become more like him. So, like, you do that, right? There's, like, two basic ways. It's, it's not rocket science. Like, you want to become more like Jesus. You can spend time with Jesus by reading your Bible, uh, but also by praying. And I don't mean praying, like, ask God for stuff, and then you'll be rich or whatever, you know. But, like, uh, so much of it is quieting the noise outside and inside and just sitting and, and talking to Jesus Stop the talking, listen to Jesus, learn to trust. And I think this is like a, a skill that's developed. Learn to trust uh, that when, when, G, when, you f f when you're trying to listen to Jesus and you, you sense that he's saying something and it matches up with what's in here, like I believe that it's him. And it's never something profound. Like I, I was on stage two weeks ago and I said, you know, never blank enough. And I know it up here, but for Jesus to say, like, no, you're good. You're fine. Your trajectory is one, I, I, and he should know, right? Because he, he knows everything. That's a great thing about Jesus. Is he, he knew that I was going to be fine. So if you told me I was going to be fine, I'd be like, knock it off. You don't know anything. But for Jesus to say something simple like you're going to be fine was this source of incredible comfort for me. So focus on that relationship and on building that relationship uh, because then you will become more like him. You will become the kind of person who, who we really do, I think, all aspire to be. Uh, the force of this uh, gets even stronger in Colossians. Paul says, for you died to this life, right, the flesh, and your real life is hidden with Jesus in God. This is a very interesting passage. What does it mean for your real life to be hidden in Jesus, with Jesus in God? So some of you know the Bible pretty well. Uh, many of you probably uh, know Genesis 1, 2, and 3 very well. That's like the beginning story. Uh, so you know that Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and they felt no shame. Okay. Now, they disobey God, right? They rebel. They have it, they're, they're in paradise, but for some reason they go and they eat this fruit. I uh, don't know how or why or, or anything like that, but it, you can imagine it's sort of like sticking your finger into a, a immersion blender. Uh, but, but they eat the fruit, and then you know what happens? They hide. 
So what Paul is saying here is, you think when you've screwed up, the safest thing for you to do is to hide from God. But you know what you should do instead? The safest place you can be is in God. Don't hide from God, hide in God. And just to kind of put that on the ground a little bit. So when we feel shame, right, we think the safest thing to do is to hide it, right? So we hide it inside. We make sure we don't tell anybody. We, we just try harder the next time, right? But what Brene Brown said in her book is that makes it worse. What Brene Brown and what Paul is saying is like you want to deal with shame, don't hide it from God. Bring it into the light. Hide it in God. There is no safer place than to be in God. Think about it. Isn't that, don't we usually try to hide our shame? It loses its power when it's brought into the light. And then what happens? And when Jesus, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. And that word glory there, I think a good translation for glory whenever you read it in the Bible is beauty. And when Jesus, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, right, when he, uh, when he returns, when he comes back and sets all the wrongs to right, when he sets everything that's crooked straight, when you don't have to battle with that flesh anymore, the flesh is put to death finally and forever, uh, and, you, and you're brought into this real you, this fullness of life permanently, what happens? You will share in Jesus' beauty. And isn't that really where true worth comes from? Like, to feel worthy, like, there's, there's a beauty that comes out of you. And what I'm saying to you today is that the real beauty is Jesus' beauty. If you would, instead of hiding from God, take your whole self, shame and guilt and all, and give it to Jesus. Because you, it's, it's this great deal for us. We give him our shame and guilt. He gives us his beauty. Isn't that amazing? I think it's incredible. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we ask that you would come right now. Send your spirit among us. Some of us are uh, like very, very familiar with shame. And so whatever that is, whether it be an addiction or a behavior or, or lust, we do. We take that and we're choosing right now to instead of hiding it from you, to give it to you. We thank you for your overwhelming and all-powerful love, which is stronger than any mistake we've made. We turn away from our religion 
We turn away from our willpower. We turn towards you to gaze on the things of heaven. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.